Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you taking care of heart failure around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, your host for this season of the Provider Podcast. I'm excited to bring you this episode. We are going to be discussing training in heart failure. The goal is really to discuss the challenges that have come up in recruiting trainees to pursue this field. We're joined by three guests today who are going to have excellent perspectives on the topic. We have Dr. Sarah Chusey, who's an Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellow at Northwestern University in Chicago. We have Dr. Hirsch Mehta, who's a practicing Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiologist, part of the San Diego Cardiac Center in San Diego. And we have Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Dr. Kittleson is the Director of the Postgraduate Education in Heart Failure and Transplantation, and she's a Professor of Medicine at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. Thank you all for joining. Thanks, Kevin. So to set us up, if you rewind a couple of years in 2020, about 50% of the programs that were enrolled in the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology match system were left unfilled after that year's match. And we can start off with Michelle. I'd love to hear your opinion on what do you believe are some of the driving factors for why there seem to be a large number of fellowship spots and only so many fellows that seem to match every year into heart failure transplant cardiology? Yes, I love that question. I suppose, what's the, is the problem there are too many spots or is the problem there are not enough fellows? That's what it boils down to, right? No one can know the answer, but I'll tell you my perspective. You know, I think there are probably too many spots. And, and if we think about the priorities in life, what are our priorities? Number one is that patients get the best possible care they can get. The second priority is fellows have all their dreams to come true. And the third priority is programs fill their spots. That's the way it should be. And then so the question becomes, for patients to get the very best of care, does everyone have to be advanced heart failure transplant cardiology board certified? And I would argue probably not. Like a really amazing general cardiology fellow, and let's be clear, every general cardiology fellow is amazing, should be able to take amazing care of heart failure patients. And then, okay, what about fellows having all their dreams come true? Does every fellow need to self-actualize an advanced heart failure transplant cardiology career to be complete? I'm not sure that's true either. So my take on the situation, while I feel for those programs that are passionate and are left without fellows to train, because who, what do we love more than molding young minds? I'm just not convinced it's a problem of too few fellows. I think it may be a problem of too many spots. Hirsch, what do you think about this issue? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's weird because here you are, you're, I'm, unfortunately, I'm dating myself. I'm, I'm getting a little old. I, I don't know how it is now, but when I matched, this is now now nine years ago, we had to decide in our second year of fellowship of where we were going to be. And then we had the whole third year to kind of be on ice and be a fellow. And I think that it has ebbed and flowed and it's changed. And I'm not up to the, the most recent time uh, course of things. But somewhere like halfway into your fellowship, you're going to have to decide. And if you know you like advanced heart failure, I think that's fantastic. And if you know you want to be at an academic center doing big transplants, that's great. The problem is, is that that's not most of the programs in the country. In fact, I would argue that's a minority of the programs in the country. Most of the time, if you graduate from a heart failure transplant fellowship, you're kind of like what Michelle has alluded to. 
you are really an excellent general cardiology fellow who becomes an excellent general cardiology attending who masters hemodynamics, can do things in the cath lab, take really good care of critically ill patients. And then you also have this knowledge base to take care of maybe immunosuppression or durable MCS or cardiogenic shock with novel devices. And it's tough to see, you know, going forward. I think that the biggest thing for a cardiology fellow who's thinking about choosing a fourth year in advanced heart failure transplant is what does the fifth year look like? I know that what I was going through it is I kind of knew my path. I knew what geographic area I was going to work in. I was a general fellow in the San Diego area. I knew where I was going to work kind of almost as a before my third year of fellowship started. I knew that what my possibilities were. And it was one of two spots and I knew it was going to be geographically in the area. But I knew what those jobs looked like. And I knew the gap in my training or the gap in my knowledge base in order to get to the job that I wanted to be at. And that's why it worked for me. I mean, if you look at my day today, you know, I'm at Sharp Memorial Hospital. We are a small transplant program. We do somewhere around 15 to 20 transplants a year. We are not Cedars-Sinai. We're not doing 110. We're not even a 60 transplant program. We're, we're doing 15 to 20. I think we do a really good job with our 15 to 20 in a capitated market, serving a patient population with, you know, a certain payer base. But these are words like payer base and capitation that fellows don't think of. I didn't think of as a fellowship. And you got to know where your patients are coming from and what niche you're going to satisfy when you go into it. So I think part of this low demand, high supply issue that we're talking about is I think it's tough to see what the fifth year is going to look like when you're a second or third year fellow making this choice. And I think that the, this lack of a clear vision or a path beyond the one year fellowship is why we're in this state of affairs where we have this problem. Yeah, I think you hit on a couple of important points. One is this, there's this sort of disconnect between what the training environment may look like in these select places to train in all of this stuff, and then what the career practice environment might look like. And they don't mirror each other. And there's only so many positions for people that want their practice environment to look just like or similar to their training environment. And it's that expectation, right? Is that I don't know when I was a fellow, I certainly couldn't visualize what my career was going to be like. That's very hard. No one can. But even the broad construct of what it might look like or take it a step back. What do I want my career to look like in year five, six, seven and beyond? Right. I think starting off at kind of a granular level helps to then mold what your training is going to be like, identifying the gaps in your knowledge base how to learn those things in a very targeted amount of time and then build upon that. And, you know, you continue learning. And, you know, it takes three years to be a medicine resident. And right when you get comfortable, you get to be a fellow. You don't get to be a resident anymore. And right when you get comfortable being a fellow, you get to be an advanced fellow. And then you're done. And it takes just as a long time to be comfortable with an attending. I mean, I think I'm in year eight right now. And I don't ever want to feel comfortable. But it takes like three or four or five years as a junior attending to kind of know what you're doing. And that's the beauty of it. That's why I love it, right? Because you still don't feel comfortable even after all these years. And I don't want to feel comfortable. I want to keep kind of molding it and evolving. Sarah, what's your perspective on all of this so far? Yeah. You know, I looked into this data last year when I wrote a perspective piece with Noshin Reza on this issue. And I do agree with what's been said by Dr. Kittleson, Dr. Maida, that perhaps there are too many spots at this time. But if you look at the growth in applications for other subspecialties like interventional cardiology and electrophysiology, there doesn't quite seem to be this degree of mismatch. They're filling, you know, relatively more spots than we are. And so, you know, I have thoughts on that. I'm looking forward to sort of diving into those issues, why potentially people who 
you know, are on the cusp during general fellowship, have an interest in advanced heart failure, might not be pursuing the, you know, subspecialty fellowship. I think Dr. Maida started to touch on those things and I have some additional thoughts. Well, you know, going back to, he brought up the timeline, right? How early in fellowship do you feel like you kind of have to not make this decision, but at least feel pretty comfortable about this decision where you're leaning? How early do you feel fellows have to make that sort of pivot in their training now? I think the ERAS application used to be during third year and it was moved earlier. So, you know, similar to residency when it feels like, especially if you're going into cardiology, by the end of your first year, you need to have a sense of, you know, what subspecialty you want to go into. I think that's similar for general cardiology fellowship for people who want to pursue subspecialties. And so by the end of first year, I think places, especially if you're interested in staying at your own institution, they're looking for your commitment to fill spots there. And so that's very quick, especially at our fellowship, we do one month of advanced heart failure during our first year. And so for people who maybe didn't come from residency programs with advanced heart failure exposure, that's a very short time. And I think you know, especially for people who haven't been exposed to that and transplant in the past, your initial exposure to those therapies is very intimidating. <laughs> Perhaps you want to run away, but it takes a little bit of time for you to sort of warm up and learn the physiology and understand, you know, the different issues involved in those therapies. And, you know, that was my experience. And so I do think that it's quick for people, for sure. So when I was a heart failure transplant fellow, I was fortunate that Michelle was one of my faculty members and advisors, and I was able to go to her, and she she will give you life and professional advice as requested. And I sat with her, and I said, "Not requested, sometimes unsolicited." Yes, right. So not just how to put my um, baby down and get her to sleep through the night, which she helped with, but also some of these issues, which are, you know, when trainees come to you, Michelle, and they say, "Hey, you know, I'm in this advanced heart failure fellowship now, and I'm trying to figure out how to navigate these decisions that Hirsch sort of alluded to." Maybe I don't get to do transplant, or maybe there's no durable LVADs in this city. How do you advise them to sort of think through that year, their first job after all of this training, what to prioritize and how to make that decision? Yes, I'd love to touch on that. Do I have permission to talk first about how I counsel general fellows? Because uh, a lot of general fellows come to me and they say, I love heart failure. I say, Do you love transplant? Do you love MCS? So like, I mean, it's okay. And to me, I feel philosophically, there's this culture of enforced adolescence. Like, please, I don't want to go out into the scary real world. Let me do another fellowship on this valve, then I'll do one on that valve, then I'll do one on this random part of the heart that no one ever talks about, but let me stick something in there. You know, there's like a million fellowships you can do now. And I think at some point, one must realize exactly as Hirsch said, the first five years you are an attending physician are terrifying. That's just life. And it doesn't matter how many years of training you do, the first five years will be terrifying and then it will get easier and more predictable and there's strategies to get through that. Kittleson rules on that. But the bottom line is no fellowship will take that away. So I tell people as a general fellow, you've got to figure out what do you want your life to look like? If you want your life to look like a wonderful job of taking care of patients and that is your passion and that is your focus. And yeah, you really love heart failure patients, but you kind of like all cardiology patients. I have actively dissuaded fellows I adore who I would love to be my advanced heart failure transplant fellow because my life would be so easy. 
I've said, you know what, this isn't the right thing for you. Why sacrifice yet another year of your life when that's not what you really want to do in your world? And I'm, I'm really interested in Sarah's perspectives on people who are on the cusp of interventional EP or heart failure, because honestly, I couldn't imagine that when I was a fellow. Interventional was really weird, poking wires for way too long. EP was just Greek or worse, all these squiggles, stop moving your right leg. I'm like, how'd you know his right leg was moving? So alien. Whereas I feel that advanced heart failure transplant cardiology is much more an extension of general cardiology. As a general cardiologist, you should know how to manage shock in the CC. You should know how to prescribe GDMT. And then there's a specialty stuff kind of added on. So to my mind, I really try to get a sense from the general fellows, what's your passion? And because it is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice to you. It can be a sacrifice to your family, putting your life on hold for this placeholder year before you decide what to do. Then, second part, what do I tell my, my kids? Because all my fellows are my kids. I've told Kevin that. I said, I'm your program director for a year, but I'm your mom for life. So this is how I say it. When you're thinking about what life is going to look like after that advanced heart failure year, you have to think about two priorities, the personal slash geographic and the professional slash academic. And maybe the two will converge and maybe they won't, but you decide which one is more important. If it's the personal geographic, I must be in this city, then you know what? You might not get your professional slash academic. If you decide it's professional slash academic, I must be at an academic transplant center with an ultimate track to professor of transplant. Well, then you know what? You might not be in a city you love, but you have to weigh those two things. As you weigh them, you make your list, you prioritize your list, and then you seek out programs. Hirsch, what are your thoughts? I'm sure trainees still reach out to you all the time about these types of issues. Yeah, no, I think Michelle hit the nail on the head is that there's two parts of it is that one is, you know, I alluded to in the first question is what do you want your career to look like? You know, I was that person where I came into, though I was dead confident and I got into insane amounts of trouble as an internal medicine resident and as an intern where I was completely confident that I wanted to do cardiology coming out of medical school. I was very unsure what on day one of fellowship of what I wanted the rest of my professional life to look like. I was very confused. I was like, oh, I, you know, dodged rheumatology and nephrology like the devil in order to do extra cardiology clinics. And my program director called me out for it. But once I got to day one of fellowship, I was like, oh, now what? I just want to be a cardiologist. And I think you have to, at some point as a young adult, on the cusp of a career in anything, right, let alone cardiology, advanced heart failure, think about what you want year 15 to look like. And then how do you create a line from year five to 15 based on what's important to you and your values. And it's okay for the first time in your life, it's okay if it's not work because your drain is an undergrad and as a med student and as a intern and as a resident that, you know, you gotta be the best intern ever because one of you is gonna get intern of the year and you gotta get the best fellowship ever and you gotta get the fellow of the year award. And you, got, and, you know, it's okay to be the best son, to be the best husband, to be the best wife, partner, gardener, you know, person who does, you know, philanthropic work, someone who you can be the best Netflix person in the world. I mean, it's okay to want to be something better, but you got to think of what makes you happy and what's going to make you complete because work's going to be there and it's going to be a part of it, but you got to get through seeing where that is and then figure out how your line is going to go from fellow to that place where you think you're going to be really happy because it's a journey and it's a process. I think that's really where I try to force trainees who come up to me to like, 
What does that line look like for you? And it doesn't have to be straight. They can be curved and jagged, but how do you create yourself to get to that point? Sarah, what do you think? I wanted to circle back a little bit on sort of this issue of advanced therapies and bad and transplant and maybe pose a question to the other guests. So, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I did a little field research. This is obviously a data-free zone as to, you know, why fellows or residents choose to not pursue heart failure. But I reached out to some former co-residents and co-fellows about those who weren't definitely going into EP or, you know, the procedural subspecialties, but people who were considering heart failure really liked stage C heart failure, but didn't want to go into advanced heart failure. And I was actually surprised by what they said. Many said that they were just turned off by the advanced therapies process. They either weren't interested in bad or transplant, but some said they found the evaluation and selection process to be off-putting. One said it was such a heavy load to carry to sort of be responsible for these decisions. And, you know, on the one hand, I think you can say, well, maybe this field isn't for you because I know many of us get really excited by that process and, you know, taking care of patients in that way. But on the other hand, LVAD and transplant patients are the 1% of patients with heart failure. And I think there's so much else to learn and contribute to a career in heart failure and with heart failure training. And so I wonder how we should advise those fellows, you know, fellows who really love stage C heart failure, want to focus their career on taking care of patients with heart failure, like the sort of stage C to stage D transition, but don't want to focus their time in academic centers, taking care of that and transplant. And maybe we need to tailor our training experience to show trainees that you can sort of have a meaningful heart failure career, even if those aren't the focus. Our fellowship experience is very inpatient heavy, which I'm sure many of them are. And obviously that's very important. And I love that, but I feel, you know, much more comfortable taking care of shock and post-bad and transplant than necessarily, you know, outpatient stage C care. And so is there a way to sort of personalize the fellowship experience to what fellows want for the future? It's a great question. Maybe we'll start with Michelle. Any thoughts on it? Yes. You know, I think it's so okay to be comfortable with what you're uncomfortable with. I mean, I couldn't do oncology. I can't see people die of cancer. I just cannot do it emotionally. That's why, for many, many reasons, that one, there's also no pathophysiology in oncology, and that disturbs me. But really, it was on an emotional level, I couldn't do it. And so I fully respect a fellow who says to me, this process is too much. And honestly, I find that actually kind of hard. I call our, our MCS director at Cedars St. Jude, who happens to be the patron saint of lost causes, because sometimes that's what it feels like when I care for these patients who are doing poorly with durable MCS. And then if you think about it, pulmonary hypertension is kind of like the redheaded stepchild of AHFTC, right? Most programs don't have a very robust pH training, but Many people go on to do pH because you find it, you get it, you absorb it, you glean it, you tailor it yourself. So two things I would say to those fellows who say, I adore stage CD heart failure, but I can't do that. I'd say fantastic. You're going to be an outstanding general cardiologist and you're going to treat your patients well. So maybe they'll never need stage D therapies or you'll know the right time to refer them so that the it's not too late. The train hasn't left the station. And I think it would be a terrible waste for them, for their life, for their family, for themselves to take an extra year to do all this stuff. The HFSA, in fact, has their program, their certification program. So general cardiologists can really get that extra reinforcement 
in heart failure care. And let's remember, you don't know everything when you graduate fellowship. Part of being a junior attending is gaining the experience to be great moving forward. So I send all those fellows to me. I would just love to talk to them and give them advice and say, it's okay. You know, it's kind of like what Hirsch said. No, you don't have to like, because it's there, you have to do it. Like we're all so driven and motivated. But you can say when it's time to stop and when you're ready to move on to being a real full-fledged doctor out of training. I do remember many of my you know, residency friends who chose to go into primary care. So just get a job right after residency. And many of us were horrified. We were like, but you're, you want to be done? <laughs> like how? One of my best, best friends from residency went into primary care. And I remember I'm like slogging through cardiology fellowship where I know nothing. And I would think about it. I'm like, gosh, she feels a sense of mastery. Like three years in, she's like, I know what I'm doing. Three years in, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's so interesting how it's an enforced adolescence. It's a perception that's not necessarily reality. At some point, you just got to get in there and take care of the patients and ask for help when you need it and read about stuff and gain the experience. I'll take a little different approach because I think, Sarah, you bring up this very, very important question. So I am a board-certified advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist, and I practice at a center that does cardiac transplant. But it's a smaller center that does cardiac transplant, and I would argue, above all else, I am a stage C cardiologist. I'm a stage C heart failure cardiologist. And I feel like for the most, and my partners make fun of me because they're like, oh, just have one of the general cardiologists see them. Hirsch will see them. I'm like, I am not a general cardiologist. Not that there's anything wrong with being a general cardiologist, but I spent that extra year doing an advanced heart failure transplant fellowship. I would say that most of the heart failure jobs in this country are closer to my job than probably Michelle's job, right? is that there are, I don't know, 115 some or 130 some transplant programs in the country, but there's probably only 20 that do more than 50 transplants and large volume 25, 30 VADs. And I know everyone's doing less VADs. And those are just of the transplant-based programs. Then there's all even more high-level tertiary care, level one trauma places that have a need for a heart failure cardiologist to be on staff because they recognize the value kind of forward thinking, you know, health systems that recognize the value of having someone who knows not only general cardiology really well, but is a master of hemodynamics and shock and can take care of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and can work with people in cardiac imaging to find some of these other parts of AHFTC, pulmonary hypertension, things of that nature to one, take really, really good care of outpatients so they don't progress into stage D. Or number two, when the time has come, they have that training and that recognition from spending that extra year of knowing when the right time to refer to a Cedars-Sinai or a Northwestern or a University of Utah, where they're doing a lot of advanced therapies in there. So it is an extra year of life. And I think that that extra year of life is forced adolescence, like we talked about, and it different for different people at different stages of their lives. But if you can take the time to sacrifice that year for what you think is going to be a really, really long career and a long arc, it may afford you the ability to really kind of be that person for the majority of heart failure jobs in the country. I think that's maybe where the disparity of question one lies of why is there this supply demand issue 
here is that maybe we're not advertising it well, where really, you know, that excellent general cardiologist who may not want to, to deal with the burden of selection and or may not really enjoy, you know, long-term care of durable MCS patients, there still may be a home for them in advanced heart failure and transplant, but it may be one of these spots and not those spots. And then how do you match that with geography and the priorities and the things that we've talked about early? You can flip it there where I think that's what the majority of, I think, board-certified heart failure trained people who take heart failure jobs in this country are kind of lining themselves up to be. I want to break in with a rebuttal. I wish we were at and I could arm wrestle. This would be so fun. Okay. I would argue if we could do a ACE crossover study with Hirsch and we could go back in time and we took Hirsch Meta and we said, you can have a general cardiology stage C heart failure job. You're not going to do any MCS or any transplant. I predict that you would be just as outstanding right now, eight years in post-fellowship, if you'd done that advanced year or you had it. I am absolutely confident given your skills, your aptitude, your initiative, your interest, your experience, that you would be just as good. You would need now you need that year for MCS transplant because that's its own animal, kind of like EP is an animal or interventional is an animal. MCS transplant is an animal. But I don't think you need it. You would be just as amazing optimizing your GDMT and pulling the trigger on the I need help mnemonic for advanced therapies. Counterpoint. I'm going to be the tiebreaker, by the way. <laughs> Part of my job is also we have a small but robust amyloid center here. I also feel the call for the radiologist or the cardiac imaging guys. Like I did this MRI and I think it's sarcoid. Can you help? Or... This person has a PA pressure of 100 on echo. Can you go run up to the floor and see this consult? And that's the other realm where because of the advanced heart failure transplant training, and I mean, I do PH today. I'm by no means, we're not enrolling PH trials and we're not doing CTEF surgery here. But within my own institution, which is like a 500-bed hospital, you know, or in a health system, you know, I'll get calls for this stuff. And I think that having spent that extra year, even though it's not part of the bread and butter of my day-to-day life, I have that extra expertise to feel those types of calls. But Michelle, I think you're right. If really you see yourself wanting to have a really good stage C practice limited to maybe just HEF-PEF and reduced EF heart failure or ischemic cardiomyopathy or maybe basic idiopathic non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, where you're titrating GDMT and you're referring at the appropriate time, you're probably right. You know, where I think that the advanced heart failure year brings it in is that that line at the edges starts to blur and where is your comfort level there and where have you kind of outperformed your comfort level or maybe you're sliding away from it. I don't know. I guess I've never thought of it until maybe like, you know, 45 seconds ago. I don't want to kind of go away from it all. But I think that's that's where I, I think that it is. But you're probably right. If you just want to create this, you know, really narrow, I, narrow is the wrong word. But if you want to create that practice where you want to take care of, you know, a general cardiology practice with an emphasis in heart failure, you could probably can do that with just a general fellowship training. Yeah. And I would add amyloid to that list. I mean, any general cardiologist should be able to diagnose and treat amyloid because honestly, there's not much treatment out there. And sarcoid, come on, most even advanced heart failure transplant cardiologists want to consult with their rheumatologist and or pulmonologist. I think it's quite rare in most places to do it by yourself. 
and pH is an animal, right? It's a sub-animal within the transplant heart failure animal. So your point's well taken. You're a good doctor regardless, but you're going to have that extra year to make a good salary. Think of where your mortgage would be right now. I know. It's Southern California. It wouldn't, there's no dent in the mortgage. <laughs> I see it both ways. I do think that, you know, as I'm almost finished with this year, I do find myself looking at patients with heart failure completely differently. And I do think that there's been a huge transformation in sort of how I think about patients, how I can sort of predict their trajectory going forward, how I can counsel them on what the next steps might be that I don't think I had as a general fellow. And of course, it's possible to, you know, there are resources to build up that practice if you're really motivated. But I do think there's still value in the extra year, even if you, you know, don't plan to pursue a career in bad and transplant. Yeah, and I think one theme that's sort of come up from everyone's perspectives is that you acknowledge the fact that during this one year of training, presumably your PGY7 year of training, you will get exposure to lots of different things. And the likelihood that you will do all of those different things is very low. And so you almost have to treat that fellowship year as the additional exposure year, right? Maybe pH, maybe amyloid, maybe transplantation, hopefully MCS, all of these things. But the likelihood that you're going to do all of them and do all of them very well after you finish your training is extremely low. You know, Kevin, to to this thing, and this is what I realize what I'm proposing here is utopia. But really what you describe is kind of a a gap filling year, right? Is at the end of your general fellowship, you recognize that my knowledge base and my patient care repertoire has a couple gaps in knowledge where I really want to get good at A, B, C, D, whatever that is. E and F, I'm going to a fellowship that's really strong with those things, but I'm coming from a general program that's really strong in those things. Maybe it's the same program. So I've got these things down, but I'm going to really hunker down and focus on finding as many pH patients as I can, because I know that where I'm going to, I need to have more pH skill. And that's really where it comes into. Wouldn't it be great? And I realized how fortunate and privileged I was, is that I knew my year five job before my year four started. And really what I could do, and I realized that that is the minority, maybe even, you know, maybe it doesn't even exist anymore. But if you knew where you were going in year five to tailor your year four to be the best person you could going out there. And I wonder what if we could do that for fellows, right? Wouldn't, you know, I realize it's so difficult, right? But if jobs would sit and allow someone to get an extra year or you know, recruiting, it will be, that's really what you're trying to do is fill your gaps and get the most out of it in that one year so you can move on and be the best version of a heart transplant cardiologist that you can be. I agree. I agree. I think I have one last question for everyone and we can kind of round robin and get everyone's perspectives. We'll start with Sarah. What advice would you give yourself when you started your fellowship based on what you know now versus what you were thinking about back then? Which fellowship? Heart failure fellowship? You're starting general fellowship, PGY4, brand new white coat, says cardiology on it. Yeah. I think advice would be, I always, I knew that I wanted to do heart failure from the beginning. And I think my advice would be, and I'd gotten this advice before, but I I would like to hear it again, is that a great heart failure doc is a great general cardiologist first. And I think, you know, the echo, the cath, the EP, everything comes together with heart failure, which is why I love it so much. But, you know, I think that's really important for people to know. And also just that life does not stop in cardiology fellowship. I was very nervous going in that, 
you know, family planning would be difficult and, you know, that I was taking on this really big burden, the hardest medicine fellowship I felt like. And now I have a two-year-old and I'm pregnant with my second and I'm doing just fine. (laughs) So, you know, I'm very happy and feel very fulfilled from a career standpoint, but also a family standpoint. And so I tried to counsel and advise, you know, younger women fellows, especially that it is possible to be pregnant in fellowship. Here are my tips, here are the places to pump and all that stuff. And so I think it's just finding mentors who, you know, are like you that can help. Yeah, that's great. Hirsch, what would you tell first year fellow version of you? First year cardiology fellow, I would say slow down, slow down. No, just kidding. No, first year, first day fellowship, I would say slow down. No, but I think really to the first year fellow version of myself, I think I would say is what you're doing now, despite all of your thoughts, is not what you're going to be doing forever. And what you're doing and what you enjoy doing will change every couple of years. And that goes for fellowship, advanced fellowship, and even today as an attending. What I'm doing in year eight is very different than what I was doing in year two and three. And my priorities will change every couple of years. And your ambitions will change. And what you value will change every few years. And try to position yourself to be in a place that your work and your professional life will be able to mold and adapt to how you feel and what your priorities are. And if you can do that, you're winning. And I think that's the big thing is that don't think that you're set in this place forever. What you like today, you may not like as much a few years from now. What you dislike today, you may not dislike as much a couple of years from now. And what you prioritize might be different a couple of years from now. And, and find yourself in a place where you can move forward with the ebb and flow as your priorities and wishes and kind of opportunities come and go with it. That's great. Michelle, what advice would you give to yourself? I feel like he took all the good advice already. Fine. Okay. So let's go back. First year cardiology fellowship for me was 20 years ago. Yes, 22 decades. I was newly married and starting fellowship. And I knew I wanted to do heart failure because I'd been inspired by mentors and because my grandfather had heart failure, it was very, you know, moving experience for me. So I knew I was going to do heart failure, but I knew I loved clinical medicine and I thought research was like boring and annoying. So what would I tell myself? I would tell myself, number one, your priorities are right because they're yours. Meaning I knew and I was very open when I applied for fellowship. I was open when I was a fellow. I said, I love clinical medicine. I want to be a really good doctor. And if you make me do research, I will. But I'm not really sure about that stuff. I guess I'm proud of myself at the time for having the courage of my convictions. And I would tell myself, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Stick to your guns and do what you love. And then the second thing I would say is exactly what her said is you pick the job that's right for you so i was strategic and very lucky when i took my first faculty position out of fellowship which i've now been in for 16 years with a mentor and a boss in a group where i'd be valued and appreciated for the clinical work that i love to do more than anything else and my job security and my worth in the group would not be based on any type of research type output which i didn't want to do at the time and exactly as Hirsch said, I'm stealing all of your things, Hirsch, that you just have to feel that life can change and your priorities 
can change, but your priorities are right because they're yours. So if you find later in your career that you have a passion for something new, I never thought I'd get involved with educational activities on a national scale, which I have more over the past five, six years. And that's been delightful and rewarding and very fulfilling. So I guess I would tell myself, be open to opportunities. And if things are exciting, do them. That's good advice. The advice I received as a first year fellow was to do what you love. And I'm only two and a half years into practice, but so far it's worked. So I appreciate all of your time. I think this is a fantastic discussion on, a, on an issue that we're obviously not going to solve today. Thanks for joining. And for more information on advances and late breaking news in the field of heart failure, subscribe to the podcast, find HFSA on Twitter, find all three of our guests on Twitter. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.